0: To Wes and conversations about the films of Wes Anderson, a proud member of the Smug Buds family of podcasts. This is episode six, which is called The Fantastic Mr. Pod. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Will. I'm Liz. Hi, Liz. How are you?
1: I'm great. What a great weekend!
0: What a spectacular weekend.
1: My brother's turning 30 on Wednesday.
0: Happy birthday, Blake.
1: So he was here this weekend. Um, I made an incredible spread of snacks. He wanted snack food for lunch. Mm -hmm. So there was like three cheeses, including his favorite one, mimolette, and some little meats and some dried nuts and some olives and some dolma and some fruits um i bought an eight dollar chocolate bar that was like 1.75 ounces (laughs) Mm. um and then i bleached my hair
0: yeah and it looks great
1: thank you uh
0: on on its way to looking like something even greater and more different am i understanding correctly
1: yes so right now it's all yellowy um because when you bleach your hair it like saps out the color, but I want it to be white so I'm going to have to tone it. But mm-hmm. these are all really harsh processes. So I kind of was like uh, living on the edge by doing it twice in one weekend. I did it on Friday and then this morning. Um, so I will wait probably a week before I do any toning.
0: Cool. I look forward to seeing the continued progress.
1: How was your uh, how was your time? Since we last spoke
0: Pretty good Uh, Went on a little vacation uh, Because it's mid-October And uh, this past week uh, Dana was on break from school Where she works And uh, so we uh, went up Wednesday to Sedona Stayed in an Airbnb uh, Hiked in Oak Creek Canyon uh, Drove up to uh, Flagstaff uh, for a day and uh, came back yesterday, which was Saturday. Mm-hmm. Today is Sunday, the 18th. And uh, yeah, we had a lovely time. It was a nice way to beat the heat by uh, just getting far f- away from it <laughs> into a colder area.
1: And um, uh, yeah, I should be on a plane right now coming home from Arizona.
0: Yes, of course. Yes. the Dana's fall break uh, under <clears throat> normal conditions, would have coincided with your trip to uh, to visit us and to uh, do a reading, mm-hmm. uh, part of your your book tour for your debut poetry collection, <laughs> Ashley, Ashley Sugarnotch, Sugarnotch and, the wolf. and the Wolf.
1: Oh, I did have my first review. Did you see?
0: Yes, I saw uh, your tweet about it. Congratulations!
1: Thank you. It was a pretty positive review, so I'm I'm happy about it.
0: Do you? Uh, was it a surprise to you, or do do you know how it came about?
1: I do know how it came about. It was a surprise, though. Um, hmm. So I joined this group, um, sort of. It was like ta- someone tagged me for it um, at the beginning of the pandemic for something called Lockdown Lit, which was a group of writers that were trying to figure out how to promote their books. Mm-hmm. Um, that were coming out this year.
2: Right. Um,
1: <clears throat> I haven't really contributed very much to the group because um, most of the people are like, I wrote this prose thing and it's like just a different world. Like it isn't for everyone, but like for most of the people in this group, it was like, oh, my agent, you know? <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: And I was like, okay, well, or they're trying, you know, I'm not trying to like, sell my book like i'm not trying to sell copies of my book like copies and copies i'm just trying to like Mm -hmm. interact with the world which will hypothetically eventually lead to me selling copies but that's not sort of the it's not the mindset i'm in yeah um but um i do follow a bunch of people and they follow me from that group and one of them was a man named tucker lieberman Mm -hmm. who lives in colombia and uh, the country,
0: yeah.
1: And And um, he bought my book with his own money. Wow! And wrote a review about it. So I know that's how he found me. I don't know why he was so moved. I guess he liked it.
0: <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, and where was it published?
1: It was published at Drunken Pen Writing, I think. Or, oh,
0: okay.
1: I think yeah. I think that's right. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I was I not a not a place I had heard of, but um. Yeah, drunken pen writing. Uh, But they put a cool graphic with it.
0: Nice. Well, I hope it's the first of many.
1: Now, I have some old business. Old business. Are you ready? Do tell. So, um, as you know, my friend Jeremy, um, he loves Life Aquatic. And so Mm -hmm. he was listening to the episode on... um, uh, this weekend, I guess. And he said to me, oh, I love the blank check references. And I said, yeah, Will loves blank check. And he said, I've talked with Griffin Newman before. He's sort of like a white Jewish me. It was weird. Uh-huh. And I said, I think Will is going to lose his mind when I tell him that.
0: <laughs> Whatever gave you that idea? <laughs>
1: I did actually just record you so I could send your face to him.
0: Great. Thank you for doing that with my consent.
1: <laughs> I don't, I cannot send it to him if you want, but I knew your eyes were just going to get really big and that would mm-hmm. not translate to the podcast.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's great. Did he have any more to say? I would love to know why and how <laughs> this was possible.
1: He said nothing else. I great. thought he would elaborate and he didn't.
0: That's, that's great. Where does Jeremy live, or where has he lived? He if that's lives not in Harrisburg. Asking...
1: I mean, I don't no. think it's a secret that he lives in the same place that I'm from.
0: Harrisburg. Right. Okay. So it's not like he spent time in New York City. Maybe went to a bunch of UCB shows and no, no, no.
1: no I don't know how this happened.
0: Okay. <laughs> I would love to learn more in the future.
1: I'll uh, I'll text him later. Okay. <laughs> Um, that's all my old business though. (laughs) I feel like this, just for the record, like, I feel like this is how my friend Elise, Nor, I've mentioned Elise Mm -hmm. before, um, who is like, Elise and her wife, Kate, are sort of like parallels to me and Kenny. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, Elise, Elizabeth, Kate, Kenny, it's just all there. Uh, and- So clear. Elise- Is somehow knows and is like, I guess, loosely friends with um, Kristen um, Russo and Jenny Owen Youngs that host the Buffering Podcast. Right. So on more than one occasion, I've been listening to the Buffering Podcast of my own accord. And suddenly my fucking friend Elise is on there. And I'm Mm -hmm. like screaming. Right. (laughs) Oh, Jeremy, by the way, is black. Yes. That is why... um, he described him as a white um, Jewish version. white Jewish version of him because Jer- right. well, Jeremy's Jeremy has a, a multicultural background, but I think he mostly identifies as black.
0: Should we talk about the movie?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
2: It's fantastic, so, baby.
0: It is a fantastic film called The Fantastic Mr. Fox, came out in two thousand and nine. You and I were in college. I saw this movie with friends in the theater at college did you do the same
1: okay so i don't remember the first time i saw this movie mm. i think i must have seen it with kenny for the first mm-hmm. time i think this is the first one that i saw with kenny because what year did sure. it come out when did it come out oh nine oh nine so yeah it seems likely that i saw it with kenny for the first time but i don't know i don't think i saw it in the theaters. Mm-hmm. Um. But I, I have always loved this movie.
0: I, uh, so here's something that I've been holding on to in my back pocket for a few weeks, mm. which is that um, I, I guess this is this is sort of a, a narrative that I've been repeating since we talked about Rushmore. I was mm-hmm. like, I, I, I didn't instantly fall in love with that film or um, most of the films that we've mm-hmm. talked about, mm-hmm. I had the same impression of Fantastic Mr. Fox. I think I enjoyed it, but didn't think too much about it um, at the time and for quite a while. It's been over 10 years since I first saw it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, for the purposes of this podcast, revisiting the films, you know, I've been teasing that I'll share my official rankings at the end yeah but uh even early in the process of re-watching the films I couldn't help myself but go through the mental exercise of thinking how are my rankings probably going to end up and mm-hmm. just trying to mentally reevaluate the films and I came to the conclusion and maybe I created a self-fulfilling prophecy for myself <laughs> but I came to the conclusion, that I might love Fantastic Mr. Fox a lot more than I ever gave it credit for prior to this re-evaluation.
1: I have trouble finding fault with this movie.
0: Yeah, okay. So let's let's start with how the movie starts. Mm-hmm. The very beginning of the movie starts with its biggest flaw in, in the missed opportunity mm-hmm. presented by the fact that this movie... Is, comes to us from the studio 20th Century Fox mm-hmm. <laughs> and they have no fun with that
1: they have no fun with that as well
0: they just left that right on the table they just show you <laughs> the logo and the fanfare for 20th Century Fox as you would have seen it in front of any other movie of theirs mm-hmm. uh, any movie that doesn't have Fox in the title and is about a fox <laughs>
1: And actually before we um, talk about the movie, can we yeah. talk about the source material and the source a little bit?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You have read the book, correct?
1: No, I I wanted to oh, and then right. I'm trying to check it out of the library and it's like I'm like I see. I'm like third in line for it.
0: Yeah, we talked about this, and I misremembered what you had told me. You must have told me that you read, what, Willy Wonka at some point? Yes, I've read Willy
1: Wonka, and I've read The um, Glass Elevator. Right, Um, and
0: I don't think that I've read any Roald Dahl books myself.
1: They're good. I mean, they're just, like, easy to read and nice and good. And So, Mm -hmm. Roald Dahl wrote The Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is, like, a young adult novel, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. this dude has had a fucking life. Do you know about Roald Dahl? Do you know anything?
0: I know a little bit. He was a spy, wasn't he?
1: Okay, that's like one of the things. Yeah. <laughs> so there's like a really great drunk history on Roald Dahl that we'll have to yes. put if I think it's on YouTube. Um we can put in here. Um but yeah, so like for he just has he just had like okay, so he died in 1990 when he was 74. He just had a wild life. So when he he was born to immigrant parents who were both Nor- Norwegian. Um, his sister died when she was seven and he was three. And then his dad died a few weeks later
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, from two different things, appendicitis and pneumonia. Um, he went to various schools in Britain where he was like, you know, it was like boarding school. So he was like hazed and he thought that was like kind of bullshit. He mm-hmm. was a fighter pilot
2: mm-hmm. in
1: World War II um then he yes was sent to DC where he was doing intelligence work um he then married um Patricia Neal in 1953 they married they were married for 30 years and had five children mm-hmm. um including um uh, uh this woman named Ali- his his daughter Olivia who died from measles
2: mm-hmm.
1: when she was seven and he basically like, Was with her when she, like, was, like, she had had measles and, like, kids got measles or whatever. And then she was, like, on the road to recovery and he was sitting next to her in bed and helping her make little animals out of pipe cleaners, like, colored pipe cleaners. Mm -hmm. And she suddenly, like, her hands weren't working and he was like, are you okay? And she was like, I'm so sleepy. Within an hour she was unconscious and within 12 hours she was dead. Mm Um. And he d- dedicated um, two of her um, – two of his books to her, um, the second of which posthumously, and became a huge advocate for immunization because there was a measles vaccine in his life. Um, mm-hmm. He also – his um, son Theo um, was severely injured when his baby carriage was struck by a taxicab, and he lived – um, but he, his, his, um, he had hydrocephalus where his brain was swelling. Yeah. And he, he, Rod, Roald doll helped develop this valve, a shunt, to help alleviate this. Yeah. This dude did a medical thing.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: And then, um, then, I mean, and then he's writing these, you know, he writes all these children's books. Um, he also writes other short stories, um, and other things like that. Um and then he um has an 11-year affair with a woman named can you guess?
0: Uh, no. Olivia? I don't know. Felicity? Oh, yes. Who he ends Mrs. up
1: marrying, Puck. she's 22 years his his um his junior. He mm. has an 11-year affair with her and they eventually get divorced. He eventually divorces his first wife, marries her. And she's still – so he died in 1990. She's still alive. She's 81. And um, when Wes Anderson – so I'm now going to se- segue. Mm-hmm. See how I said it right? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so um, in the vi- in the one video I watched, which we'll link in the show notes about the making of this movie, um, Wes Anderson stayed at the dollhouse when he mm-hmm. was writing the screenplay And they interviewed the, what?
0: What's the house called?
1: Oh, I don't know if it has a name. I just meant like the house that he lived in.
0: Okay. Yeah, I believe it has a name.
1: Oh, it does? Do you know what it is? Just based
0: on interviews that I've heard. Yeah. um, I'm not making a joke. Uh, You can look this up uh, if uh, you think I'm wrong. I believe it is called the Gypsy House.
1: Oh, really? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they did not say that in the video I watched. Um, I wonder why oh yeah a lot of the um, oh yeah here it is Um, a lot of the stuff in the movie Mm -hmm. is modeled after Wes Anderson's time there um, where they interview Felicity and she's got this little model of Felicity Fox sitting in front of her so Mm -hmm. she's like must be 61 in this because it's like from like 10 years ago this interview she's like or seven. Yeah, she's 871 now. So she's probably 71 there. Um she said that like when she saw the movie she and they're in his study at one point, she was like that's real study. Like yeah. he just recreated it for the movie and that's why I cried a lot when I was watching that movie.
0: So yeah. Yeah, and apparently I read in the trivia on IMDb apparently this you know the scene where Mr. Fox is dictating into the tape recorder yeah. his master plan. Apparently that's how Roald Dahl would write.
1: (laughs) That's incredible.
0: Yes. At the same time though, I just want to make sure that we don't go so far down this path that we paint this movie as like the whole point of it is to be this loving, tribute to the author Roald Dahl, and just to to challenge that, I would point out that another thing that I read about this movie is that Mr. Fox himself is styled after Wes Anderson. He's yes. not styled after Roald Dahl. Yeah. They, he, he wears the suits that he wears because that's how Wes Anderson dresses. And in fact, the puppets' clothes are made from fabric that was obtained from Wes Anderson's tailor.
1: That's, of course he has a tailor one.
0: Wow. Well, so yeah. Okay,
1: so that's even more interesting because the, this little video clip that I started said, you know, Roll Dahl thought of Mr. Fox as himself. Mm-hmm. And so it makes very much sense to me that Wes Anderson would say, well, it's now my movie, so.
0: Right. That's sort of a yes, fitting, almost a little bit perverse, perhaps, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, metaphor for the process of adaptation. Yeah, is like, oh, okay, you we're you putting crea- him in his clothes. <laughs> you created this self portrait. Well, I'm going to retell that story, and now it's a self portrait of me, the guy yeah. retelling it.
1: So that that's just what I wanted to say about um, about. Uh, rolled doll just because like I feel like it's worth mentioning that this dude had this wild Mm -hmm. life that had was rife with tragedy as well
0: (laughs) oh yeah absolutely um the reason I could remember that he was a spy at one time was because part of that drunk history story which I think I may have already knew this. Mm -hmm. I may have already known this. Uh Uh-oh, the past participle is disappearing from our language. (laughs) Um, I think I may have already known this before I watched the Drunk History episode, but um, Roald Dahl and Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond, knew each other. Mm -hmm. And they, in fact, sort of traded properties in adapting their books to films. So (laughs) Ian Fleming... Adapted chitty chitty bang bang for the screen. Mm-hmm. And Roald Dahl wrote one of the James Bond movies.
1: Yeah, that's what I a be- wild time to be alive.
0: <laughs> I believe it was You Only Live Twice, which has it which is a very problematic movie with some obvious racism. Yeah.
1: It yes, also, he did you, you only it, you he did You Only Live Twice.
0: Also, but also, if I remember my Bond movies correctly, it happens to have my favorite line in any Bond movie, which is when someone tells James Bond or starts to tell him something by saying "Bad news from outer space."
1: <laughs> yeah, and the um, the Wikipedia entry too does have a a whole section called criticisms,
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. sure,
1: which includes sections. Inclu- the first section is called reputed anti-semitism, anti semitic. say it.
0: Anti-semitism. Thank you. Yes. I-, I mentioned this to you off mic when we had some of this conversation last week. Shout out to the Dead Authors podcast, a defunct podcast for yes. many years now, yes. which was hosted by, which was a live show that then was recorded and released as a podcast, hosted by Paul F. Tompkins. In character is H.G. Wells, the idea being that H.G. Wells did, in fact, have a real-time machine, <laughs> and he uses it to go back in time, pluck uh, famous authors out of their timelines, mm-hmm. uh, take them to the present, and interview them for this show. Um, a very great, funny show with a, f- a handful of just transcendent, exceptional episodes, like the one where James Adomian plays Walt Whitman, and it's just the most bizarre, most, like, <laughs> just, I can't even believe the momentum of the <laughs> way that he talks, like improv performance that I've ever heard in in my, I don't know how several years of listening to mm-hmm. comedy podcasts. Um, but there's one where Ben Schwartz plays Roald Dahl, and it's clearly, it's it's all, you know, Paul prepared for the interviews. Yes. But it was up to the performer, the guest, to decide how much or how little they prepared. And uh, Paul, as J.G. Wells, just blindsided blindsides Ben Schwartz with this question about, like, you made this remark and then it's something horribly anti-Semitic. <laughs> yeah. And to to listen to Ben Schwartz react (laughs) and, like, barely keep up the pretense of staying in character, um, it's it's like, it's so funny, but you can tell that he's devastated. But also he's, like, appreciates the humor of it as well.
1: There's a secondary section that says further criticisms and then lists Mm. racism and misogyny. So, you know, just Mm -hmm. the whole bucket there. (laughs) <laughs> I also um, something that I thought was actually remarkable something that I always find find that's remarkable about him is the story about when his daughter dies because mm. he's sitting with her and playing with her mm-hmm. um, which is not something that a father at that time right. would have necessarily been doing
0: yeah more than a lot of people would do yeah understood
1: Um. But anyway, we're not talking about Roald Dahl. We're talking about Wes Anderson.
0: (laughs) So perhaps I will use this as a transition to talk about this movie as an adaptation Mm -hmm. by an auteur. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not familiar with the source material. So I'm not prepared for or interested in having a conversation about the differences between book and film
1: neither am i
0: (laughs) what i am interested in which i can observe with my knowledge of the subject (laughs) is that this is the only adaptation that wes anderson has ever done Mm -hmm. and in addition to being an adaptation of a famous book it is undeniably, recognizably a Wes Anderson movie. Yes. Despite being an adaptation, and also in a totally new medium. Mm-hmm. Medium meaning animation. Not, you know, it's still a feature film, but yes, uh, uh, animated instead of different
1: way out. to make a movie.
0: Right. So uh, that got me thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, how often? is this done? How often can we say that this is the case Mm -hmm. that someone uh, adapted a book into film, but they didn't do so anonymously. Mm -hmm. They themselves, the filmmaker are an auteur. And so it is uh, recognizably an example of, of their work and their creative vision. And I think this is an interesting question because I think that adapting source material to the screen mm-hmm. is not what auteurs are known for doing. Mm-hmm. You know, Wes Anderson is a writer-director all, up to this point, and, and you know everything outside of this, it's all his original work. I yeah. mean, you know, maybe there's an asterisk on the word original, like obviously... Steve Zizou is Jacques Cousteau, mm-hmm. um, but you know there was there was no you know specific example of source material that you can point to and go mm-hmm. ah this is the film version of that book. Mm-hmm. So, um, so two so two two criteria have to be met, and one is auteur filmmaker doing what they do, and the other is not only an adaptation of a book, but known as an Mm -hmm. adaptation of a book and i and i say that qualification because for example the godfather was a book first (laughs) right but that's like a footnote Mm -hmm. in the story of the film the godfather yes like nobody nobody thinks like ah yes the famous book adaptation (laughs) uh so um that takes a lot of adaptations off the table um and so, what does that leave us with? I've thought of a couple of things.
1: Yeah, I can't think of any. So go on.
0: in In recent years, the first thing I thought of was the Cohen brothers adapted "No Country for Old Men," and mm. I feel like that is perhaps not as famous a book as "Fantastic Mr. Fox," but I feel like it's there's widespread understanding that that was a book first, that that film is an adaptation.
1: Yes, and I think within cer- like certain circles, that book was really, really well known. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Y- maybe not the Everyman, but.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, that book, that movie is a Coen Brothers movie because that's yes. that's all yes. that's all they make is Coen Brothers movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to go through some of the other notable auteurs of our time. And someone like Quentin Tarantino is an example of someone mm-hmm. who, like, has sort of the strongest, you know, recognizable style of of any working auteur. But you know, he's sure as hell not adapting books. Yeah, he's he's making the movies. You know, mm-hmm. yes. Um, and and all of his influences are are mainly cinematic. Um, and then I've uh, well, okay, I. Thinking when I thought of No Country for Old Men, uh-huh. I sort of can't think of that movie without then also immediately thinking of There Will Be Blood because right. that that was the same year and they were sort of neck and neck in the Oscars race. Was and that an adaptation? Yeah, that is. So that almost doesn't qualify because it's easy to not know that that was yeah. an adaptation of a book. The book happens to have a different name. Oh. The book the book is called. Oil. with no. an exclamation point. No,
1: it's not. <laughs> I swear. No, it's not. I swear it is. Holy shit! Yeah, they made a good choice. They made a good edit there. <laughs> they were like, I ha- so they were in the the room, you know, the writers' room. They were like, yes. I have a note. Mm-hmm. I think we should change the title.
0: <laughs> and and good on them. And that and that is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. A Paul F. And, F. Tompkins movie. And, mm, not quite. <laughs> Paul F. Tompkins has some good stories about Paul Thomas Anderson, <laughs> which you can hear on his stand-up album "Laboring Under Delusions." Yes, um, Paul F. Tompkins was is technically in "There Will Be Blood." Yeah, I was um, making. I was just making mm-hmm. a joke. Yeah, um, but yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson is also you know an auteur, um, writer, director. Um, I, I had some sort of half thoughts about Charlie Kaufman, who we have already talked about because I. Talked in a previous episode about Synecdoche, New York and Mm -hmm. and the sort of time warping um, and the cinematic language. And Charlie Kaufman wrote the movie Adaptation, Mm -hmm. which is not an adaptation of The Orchid Thief. It's a meta movie about trying to adapt The Orchid Thief. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he just... The funny thing is Charlie Kaufman is the auteur behind that movie, but he didn't direct it. He wouldn't start directing movies himself until later. His latest movie is an adaptation, I'm thinking of ending things. So assuming that that book sort of endures the test of time, like that's such a new book and the movie is even newer. um, That is a Charlie Kaufman movie through and through. And it is also an adaptation of a book. Um, Do you think
1: you'd count, um, um, Oh God! What is his name? Edgar Wright.
0: Oh, Scott Pilgrim. Yes. Yeah. Scott Pilgrim Do you think is an that adaptation. Counts? Yeah, um, that's uh, really interesting that you thought of that before I did. Um, yeah, that's who my knew? Because that's my favorite movie. I guess I just <laughs> I wasn't thinking about um, comic books, and so, uh, but yeah, it it, it is. Um, very much an adaptation of the graphic novels and it is very much an Edgar Wright movie and Edgar Wright is very much an auteur so yeah especially
1: because I know you specifically said too that like Brian Lee O'Malley loved some of the things that Edgar Wright did so right. much that he put them into his gr- later graphic novels that had not even come out yet when yeah the movie it was did. very
0: much a two-way street and like an active partnership between those two yeah i think the i think that's a great example and i think those those i think these two movies go hand in hand mm-hmm. um like uh uh scott pilgrim for, for Edgar Wright and Fantastic Mr. Fox.
1: Especially because with those two specifically, and of course more so with Scott Pilgrim, but um, I know that Wes Anderson really drew on the style of the original illustrations. Right. Much like I know that when when people I know who were reading Scott Pilgrim before they saw Scott Pilgrim, one of the things that made them sort of you know yell so much in a good way was that they were like, it's just like the book, like the best yeah. parts of the book are just there. And that right. I, again, have not read the book. But if what you love is those illustrations, it seems like those are there.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As much as those illu- those illustrations could be realized in live action mm-hmm. with some, you know, commu- some computer Graphics laid on top sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely, you know, as loyal and close to the experience as it could be crossing different mediums like that. Media.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, not many then. Right. Some, but not many.
0: Yeah, I'd like to sort of keep exploring this question, um, see if we can expand the list more, more than that. I mean, um, like, The Irishman just came out last year. That's an adaptation. And that's very much like, you know.
1: Oh, God, I forgot about that movie.
0: That, you know, that's no no one but Martin Scorsese would, would make that movie. So you could, you could make the case that that qualifies as well. Yeah.
1: Can we talk about things we love?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: So I want to talk about color. Mm-hmm. So we've even mentioned this before on this podcast series. It yeah. is orange.
0: Yes. 99%. Um,
1: it glows orange. And um, in this, again, I keep bringing this up like I did a whole thing. This video is seven minutes and 45 seconds long. Um, they were talking, um, The Wes Anderson is actually not in this video very much. But one of the things he says is that there's no green in this movie and mm. only a little bit of blue. Yes. Um, and that they did that really purposefully because I guess like really what the book should be is, or what the movie should be is just mud because Mm -hmm. of the time of year and the fact that they're underground, everyone should just be covered in mud. But he was Mm -hmm. like, mud is really difficult to doing in stop frame animation.
2: Right. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's,
0: it's sort of amazing that they have water and, uh, other liquids and, and smoke in in yes. the movie. I feel like the thing that stands out the most in a sort of tactile, like I recognize that I might do this the same way in my backyard if I <laughs> were making a yeah. st- you know, stop motion thing. Um is is when there's an explosion mm-hmm. and there's like cotton balls yeah. for smoke.
1: Yeah. And um It's also – it's very interesting to see how they did everything there because everything with, like, the actual characters and models and stuff, there's very, very little CGI in this movie. Mm -hmm. I think most of the sort of computer stuff that's happening is happening, um, like, to – with a green screen. So, Mm -hmm. like, if, like, the background of a shot is a um, image that they made, but it's being filled in with a green screen – Right. over the set if that makes sense yes which almost doesn't even feel exactly like cheating quote unquote right <laughs> um from like doing like a physical thing for it mm-hmm. um I also know that like the sets si- the sizes of the sets sort of vary wildly so like mm-hmm. there's different character models um and they were also really really concerned about lighting. Mm-hmm. Um so the scene I mean if if you're thinking about lighting like is there a scene that comes to mind to you about like just it's just vibrant
0: Um yes the cider cellar scene
1: yes so Wes apparently told the dude like I want I want the only lighting in that room to be coming from the cider so everything right. had to be like shot through these cider m- jugs Mm -hmm. and every shot they had to slightly rearrange them because from different angles they'd be they wouldn't be illuminated properly Mm -hmm. um and all of this is just like i mean i could watch this movie with no sound and no subtitles Mm -hmm. and just be enamored with every piece of it it's so beautiful and even just the fact like, the range of emotion I was thinking about specifically, that they get mm-hmm. in those faces of those those character mm. models. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, there's, of course, really funny things that they do. Like, the blueberries. Anytime anybody eats a blueberry, their eyes turn to blueberries. And then they – did you notice that? Yeah. I'm sure you did. Because <laughs> you're smart. Um, And – uh, but just, like, the little faces that they make,
2: mm-hmm. it's
1: it, – I mean – even just the fact that, like, a fox's face or a face that has a snout, I feel like is hard to convey human emotions on because it's shaped so weird. Right. And yet they they did it. Yes. So those are those are my short notes on color, and then the character models.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and lighting. absolutely. Yeah, the cider cellar scene it just looks uh, incredible, and and even when the lighting changes. You know mm-hmm. when what's her name uh, comes in and out of the scene, Mrs. Uh, Bean, I think mm-hmm. who she would be. Yeah. Um, uh, the fact that there's not one but two light switches that she flicks on and off, so mm-hmm. that there's actually like there's three different versions of the lighting for this yes. space. Um. And and I the the imagery of of uh, when she is in the room. Mm-hmm. And and Fox is frozen in place, trying not to be seen. <laughs> yeah, like and, a genie in a bottle. Yeah, and the extreme. There are a few, quite a few, actually, like extreme close-ups <laughs> uh, in in the movie, which I think are do so much. Yeah, just to to convey like you know the emotion of what's going on in a scene. And yeah, you're right. There's an incredible amount of nuance. In the facial expressions on the uh, the animal puppets, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the human puppets, so I had a couple of ways that I wanted to talk about this movie, and the first yes. we've already covered, which is mm-hmm. the author doing an adaptation. Yes, the reason I, I'm I'm always looking for ways in to mm-hmm. have what I think will be interesting conversations about this movie. However, in this case, I thought it was particularly necessary because I think the better a movie is, the more we run the risk of having sort of a boring conversation. <laughs> because what what is there to say about it except all the ways in which it is great?
1: Yeah, this rules.
0: Yeah, it does. <laughs> it kicks ass. <laughs>
1: it
2: kicks ass.
0: Uh, the other main way that I wanted to talk about this movie is... Um, in addition to being uh, the first uh, animated film in this filmography, mm-hmm. it has something else that sets it apart from all the others.
1: George Clooney.
0: Correct. And Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. Yes. Yes. You 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 knew exactly where I was going with this. Ooh, yes. baby. This movie has an asset that no other Wes Anderson movie could have, mm-hmm. which is. Stars as big as George Clooney and Meryl Streep.
1: Which is saying something because Bill Murray is no short stack.
0: Bill Murray is no slouch. However, at the time when he was in Rushmore, that was like a rehabilitation of his career. That's, mm-hmm. That sort of gave his career a new life. And as famous a movie star as Bill... Bill Murray has been. Uh, He, he is, uh, he's an SNL alum, right? He's, he's Mm -hmm. a, he's a comedy star. He's not a sex symbol. No. (laughs) Uh, He, he, being a comedy star, perhaps, can be much more versatile than being a George Clooney or a Meryl Streep. Mm -hmm. and maybe it's obvious and it goes without saying, but I wanted to have a little conversation at least about why this could only happen in an animated movie like Fantastic Mr. Fox and why George Clooney and Meryl Streep could never be cast in a live action Wes Anderson film.
1: Well, and I also wanted, I was hoping you would know how, I guess like he got them, so to speak.
0: I don't even know, except that, you know, this is a 20th century Fox movie mm-hmm. and real dull, famous author, Fantastic Mr. Fox famous book. Mm-hmm. I presume that people behind the making of this movie thought that there was real potential that they had a hit on their hands. You know, why not? Yeah. It, as it turns out, we can learn the answer why not, or at least how not, because this movie was not very financially successful. <laughs> it was not a big hit. But oh, wow, I just,
1: Yeah, I see that now. It made money, but not,
0: not an enough. enormous amount. Yeah. Um, so I assume, yeah, you can get George Clooney and Meryl Streep to be in this movie because it's supposed to be kind of a guaranteed hit. Mm -hmm. Um, And who knows? Maybe they're big fans. I have no idea. But um, even if they are huge fans of Wes Anderson, as we've heard other people say, like Adrian Brody wanted to be in a Wes Anderson movie Mm because he was a fan of Wes Anderson and vice versa. If George Clooney was the world's biggest Wes Anderson fan. (laughs) they would have to th- this is this is they they would have to invent something new mm-hmm. to do together mm-hmm. like because it's voice acting that's different yeah you don't see them on camera their movie stardom will not steal focus away from mm-hmm. you know what's supposed to be happening so voice acting is like the exception there's there's a certain class of movie star who we today they are fewer and farther between Mm -hmm. but they still exist and that handful of people still i believe couldn't appear in a wes anderson movie without breaking the world Mm -hmm. by stealing focus Mm -hmm. for example Tom Cruise is Tom Cruise is basically the only movie star we have left of Tom Cruise's caliber. Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise is way past the point in his career of playing an actual character.
1: Yeah, he's playing Tom Cruise playing a character.
0: Tom Cruise couldn't be in a Wes Anderson movie because any movie starring Tom Cruise is a Tom Cruise movie, mm-hmm. regardless of who's making it. Mm-hmm. Like, Mission Impossible movie, movies are Tom Cruise movies. Um, You know, likewise, you know, Top Gun, Maverick, and whatever movie he's going up into space to film, mm-hmm. <laughs> don't know what that movie's <laughs> going to be called, but these, these are all Tom Cruise movies.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So... George Clooney and Meryl Streep are also not of the same caliber, but in the same category. Yeah. And so I have been thinking about this question of how many people are there who Wes Anderson just flat out couldn't cast in a live Mm -hmm. action movie. And uh, the next person I think of, perhaps you think of the same person. I don't know. Is Brad Pitt. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which then begs the question, I'm going to bring it back to Tarantino, who Mm -hmm. I already invoked in the adaptation conversation, even though Leo. Hmm? Leo. Yes. So, so, okay. So, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, this, this, it brings it back around to the question of, okay, if Wes Anderson is an auteur, Mm -hmm. so his films have to be Wes Anderson movies. Mm Mm-hmm. Therefore, there's a certain caliber of movie star who would steal the spotlight to the point of destroying the film.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, Quentin Tarantino is an auteur. Mm -hmm. So how is it that Quentin Tarantino can cast Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but Wes Anderson couldn't cast Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt in The French Dispatch?
1: Oh, I mean, I have an answer to that.
0: Yeah, I do too. <laughs> but if you 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 want to start,
1: well, my answer is that Quentin Tarantino's movies are about like hyper masculinity. Mm-hmm. So to have a movie that's about Hollywood, right? That's got some of the most hyper masculine actors mm-hmm. in a movie by a hyper masculine director. Yeah. It that can that sort of like the swan song, not swan song, the opus, the like
0: mm-hmm. like
1: this was the Quentin Tarantino movie. Like this was like the big one. Like yeah, this is him having of. all of the resources available to him.
0: That's an interesting way of framing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um I, I always thought of it as an, another Quentin Tarantino movie which is an event in and of itself it's just, it's going to be an event every time.
1: Yeah, I guess I saw this one as like now he's like, he's not, because I remember a time when I was younger when Quentin Tarantino was big but he was still like oh, like, you know nerdy an outsider. we're Were fans of him, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but like Wes Anderson is like a soft boy <laughs> like in his corduroy suits, like yes. Um, he's a soy boy he's thinking about you know colors like right
0: (laughs) and I think Quentin Tarantino is is thinking about colors too Um, he's just uh, perhaps but they're not as muted (laughs) doing it for a different reason maybe so Quentin
1: Tarantino's thinking of like turning black and white to that electric yellow car in that one movie that I can't think of the name of that came out and is a double feature Kill Bill Kill no
0: um, oh, Grindhouse, uh, Death Proof.
1: Yeah, Death Proof. Yeah, Death Proof. There's a a, sh- a scene, a shocking scene.
0: I never where... saw Death Proof. That's why I oh. went to Kill Bill first.
1: No, I mean you're right with the yellow though, but it's that it's that electric yellow. And there's a scene in that movie where it's black and w- this it's been black and it's been going back and forth, and it's black and white. And this car pulls up to a gas station or something like a
2: mm-hmm.
1: convenience store, and it. Um, is a shot of the front wheel of the car mm-hmm. um, with like sort of the convenience store in the back and it clicks yeah. and it's bright yellow. And it's one of these things where like the audience I think I saw that in theaters and the audience hmm. just gasped. Like it was like not hmm. even like a plot point. It was yes. just so colorful. Right. Um, whereas, you know, Wes Anderson's like, I really like uh, orange and uh, a muted pink.
0: <laughs> sure. <laughs> So you framed it with a masculinity conversation, which I think is spot on and is sort of a different way of saying what I was going to frame it with, which is that Wes Anderson makes movies and he he makes movies about movies. He makes movies based on his love for the movies and particularly Mm -hmm. what a lot of people would consider like, B movies, right? Yes. Movie movies, and so in that context, Quentin Tarantino can weaponize the stardom of mm-hmm. a DiCaprio or a Pitt. Mm-hmm. Wes Anderson, also an auteur, uh, but with a different agenda and 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 different sensibilities. Wes Anderson makes films that, uh, for all the success that he's had and all the resources he may have accumulated over the years, still to this day they all feel like DIY projects <laughs> that yeah. are basically like a, a an amateur theater company, like throwing together a production. You know, and like, they feel feel like homemade plays, kind of.
1: Well, and actually, I might even take what you're saying in the same direction that you were doing it, but not the direction you actually went. Which is that, um, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino's making movies about movies. Wes Anderson's making movies about books, even when they're not adaptations.
0: Right, yes. There is a very bookish, very literary sensibility, which I think... In another context, someone like Brad Pitt could fit into because mm-hmm. Brad Pitt has this unique tight roping quality where uh, he is a, an extremely handsome, famous movie star, but at the same time, maybe should be more of a character actor.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um and uh you know thrives in in that kind of a a role Mm -hmm. uh rather than a like you know tom cruise it's just a vehicle for uh the celebrity uh type of role um i'm not spinning my own original thought when i say this i think i'm repeating things that i've heard said about brad pitt on uh say the blank check podcast for example Mm -hmm. with um with with White Jeremy and Dan Sims. <laughs> um but uh yeah, so so I think because uh of Wes Anderson's uh sort of snow globe kind of tableau uh way of making a film, mm-hmm. um I think that there's a certain uh, caliber of, of recognizable person who would break the illusion mm-hmm. if they actually appeared on camera. I think I, I was trying to think, so I'm thinking about a few different questions. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about why is this true? I'm thinking uh, next, I'm thinking about like, you mentioned Bill Murray. So so we can't have this conversation without saying like, okay, Bill Murray's very famous and he's in literally all of these movies except for the mm-hmm. first one. Yeah. Um, so that I can get away with that by saying like, okay, he's a comedy star. That's more versatile than, um, you know, classic movie star. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next question I ask is, okay, if it's not Bill Murray, what's the closest... Wes Anderson has come to putting someone on camera who on paper seems like they might be too famous and too outside of this world to fit in. And the conclusion that I've come to, do you know what I'm going to say?
1: Uh, Gambon? No. Cassell? No. Uh...
0: It's a movie we haven't watched yet.
1: Oh, I thought we were just looking at what we had already seen. Who?
0: Well, Bruce Willis is in Moonrise right. Kingdom. Right.
1: Right. Yeah, of course.
0: Which is weird for a number of reasons. <laughs> but Bruce Willis is is, you know, uh he's Bruce Willis. He's he's mm-hmm. he's known for many years famous celebrity actor mm-hmm. Bruce Willis. At the same time, you know Bruce Willis, little little bit older, a little bit more yeah. long in the tooth. Um, Tom Cruise also quite old, but you you wouldn't know it. Yeah. And and that's kind of, that's kind of different. There's kind of there's nobody else who's like Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Willis might might have been Brad Pitt esque at one time, but mm-hmm. not not currently, and not when mm-hmm. Moonrise Kingdom was made. So, uh, all of this is just to say, be, by virtue of being a cartoon, mm-hmm. uh, you you get Wes Anderson gets to play with George Clooney and Meryl Streep, which yes. is so far beyond his usual ensemble. Not saying in terms of talent. Not saying. Not saying that. The people he normally works with aren't as talented as them. Yeah. But they're not movie stars in the way that George Clooney and Meryl Streep are. And that is an asset to to the film.
1: Well, and can we also then talk about some of the other voice actors? Yeah, of course. So to compare the fact that George Clooney and Meryl Streep are the two main foxes, mm-hmm. we get Jason Schwartzman again as Ash
0: Who's we stand the, a short king.
1: Yes, <laughs> who who is our little angsty little fox? But then Christofferson, his mm-hmm. cousin, yep, is voiced by
0: Eric, Eric Anderson, Anderson <laughs> Wes Anderson's brother,
1: which is like his only role, like his only real. He's not a he's not an actor really.
0: He's perfect though,
1: and and also. I was glad that we were having this conversation because I remember the first time I, one of the first times I watched this movie, being like, "Is that Owen Wilson?"
0: (laughs) Mm, That's Chris And then
1: then, yes, and then getting to the scene with Owen Wilson, yes, and being like, "No, No, that's that's Owen Wilson."
0: Wilson. Yeah,
1: but it's because he's got that same fucking weird Texas accent that they all have.
0: Yes, that's true.
1: And then, do you know who voices Agnes?
0: Which one is Agnes? Agnes oh. is the
1: the girl fox.
0: Right. Uh, I can't remember now.
1: I don't know how to say her name, but it's Wes Anderson's wife.
0: Oh, right. Yes. Yes. I, I knew that. I, well, I her
1: last name is Maloof. Her first mm-hmm. name is J-U-M-A-N.
0: <laughs> yeah. Juman or something like that. Yeah. Which,
1: have you ever seen a picture of her?
0: I'm sure that I have at one point.
1: The only I mean the the thing I can say is she looks like Wes Anderson's wife. <laughs> mhm. Sure. She looks like um he dressed her.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> like she looks very much like she's in a Wes Anderson movie.
0: <laughs> I mean at a certain point I assume Wes Anderson has an image to keep up, you know. He has <laughs> He needs to have a persona for the public. That is in keeping with his brand. Yeah. By brand, Um, I mean, you know, the sort of unified theory of his movies and how they look and feel.
1: Yeah. So um, I just think that that I think that that's so interesting because Agnes is less so of a character. But like, you know, if I'm looking at maybe the five main characters,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I'm thinking Mr. Fox, Mrs. Fox. Ash, and then like Christopherson,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then probably um, Kylie. Yeah. With like a close sixth being Clive, Bill Murray's character. Yeah. Um. So you have on the one hand, George Clooney and Meryl Streep. And then on the other hand, you have these people that Wes Anderson's just related to. <laughs> mm-hmm which yeah. is not to say they don't do a good job but like when you're talking here about like this is the only way that George Clooney and Meryl Streep could be in a movie it's also kind of the only way that he could put in his wife and brother
0: right yes that's true yeah <laughs> at both ends of the spectrum right and Wes Anderson himself uh has the biggest role in this movie that he's ever given to himself mm-hmm. he he plays weasel the uh real estate agent animal yes. who has i mean a, a number of lines it's it's more than just say the you know the tennis, tennis announcer scene. cameo in Royal Tenenbaums yeah
1: Um. also uh, I want to go over a couple more people that are characters because we have some old favorites we also have a couple other weird things mm-hmm. <laughs> at least one okay there's one other weird thing
0: I think I know what you're talking about
1: <laughs> <laughs> um so we have, of course, Michael Gambon is Frank, uh, is Bean. Yes, and he's perfect in this character. I mean, just, just <laughs> transcendent.
0: <laughs> it's so good.
1: Roman Coppola shows up yes. as the squirrel contractor. Yes. Um, we Co- as you,
0: co-writer of the previous movie we discussed.
1: Yes, as you, um, as you pointed out to me in a text message, Adrian Brody is in this movie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He, he has about two lines as a mouse.
0: Yep, little we'll field well, mouse. I,
1: two lines the one mouse the one line is hey i want to help i want to fight and Mm -hmm. then the second line is him just going (laughs) so good which is just perfect but then there's a rabbit Mm -hmm. and the rabbit is voiced by mario batali
0: (laughs) it has to be said that the rabbit is a chef yes that's the rabbit's thing its Mm -hmm. skill and its role and its profession so it is unfortunately, in hindsight, you know, disgraced chef Mario yeah. Batali.
1: Oh, and two other things that uh, sorry I should mention: Jarvis Cocker plays Petey, who's mm-hmm. the the banjo player yep. who is a sort of Brit rock dude. Yep. Um. So finally, Wes Anderson just gets some an actual Brit rocker in his movie. Mm-hmm. Um. And then Willem Dafoe plays the rat, and I cannot recognize him. Really. I can't hear it.
0: Oh, that's I hear funny.
1: the voice of the rat, but yeah. I can't, I can't in my mind see that coming out of Willem Dafoe's mouth.
0: <laughs> I, I feel like I can hear it. That's interesting. Um, so that I will use that as a transition to ask you, do you know, you watched the making of feature maybe they cover this or maybe it was all about the animation process. Mm-hmm. Do you know how they recorded the performances for this movie?
1: So the little movie that I saw was mostly talking about like the the world building that they did. Uh-huh. I'm sure that there's stuff about how they recorded the voices, but I don't. I haven't seen anything about
2: it.
0: Yeah, it's just an it's an interesting coincidence that you can't that you singled out Willem Dafoe because mm-hmm. in what I read, Willem Dafoe was singled out as the main cast member who was recorded separately and not oh. in the way of everyone else. Uh-huh. So basically. Um, In in animation, the way this would normally be done is in a sound booth with Mm -hmm. one person at a time. And how this movie was recorded on the performance level was that the cast was all brought together onto a farm in the English countryside.
1: Of course, Wes Anderson did this.
0: (laughs) With Wes Anderson and with, you know, sound people to record Mm -hmm. them. Um, And they acted it out. And they still read from scripts. They didn't, you know, memorize memorize lines lines the way they would for a live action film. But uh, they they recorded sometimes indoors, sometimes outdoors. Um,
1: (laughs) I don't mean to roll my eyes at this, but this just sounds like...
0: So there are two stories... It um, sounds boutique. Yes. (laughs) A
1: boutique recording.
0: So there are two stories that come out of this that I think are interesting. And one Mm -hmm. is there was a take that Wes Anderson loved and wanted to use in the movie, Mm -hmm. but it was um, perhaps uh, almost ruined by the, the noise of a boat (laughs) that was picked up on the recording. So they used that take in the movie anyway Uh And in the movie, an airplane flies overhead.
1: Oh, my God. I know exactly what you're
0: talking about. And that is the sound of of the boat, which was not, you know, supposed supposed to to be be there in the movie. Um, It was an accident. And and Wes Anderson said, you know, I thought it, would, you know, turned out to be great. I, you know, it's better with the airplane. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other story, which I, which... You can hear if you watch this conversation from New York Public Library on YouTube with uh, Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, Noah Baumbach co-wrote this movie with Wes Anderson, same as The Life Aquatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, talk uh, for a long time the, uh, it, on YouTube, it's split up into 10 different uh, clips and the the video quality is quite poor, mm-hmm. um, but the audio quality is okay, mm-hmm. and so it's 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 it can be enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And uh, to set to set up this story a little bit, maybe maybe you shouldn't tell the, the behind the scenes story without acknowledging the scene that this story is about, okay. which, which is because it's it's the best scene in the film. Oh. Which is the waterfall scene. That that is a stunning visual. I will give you that. That is that is a very stunning visual.
1: That's when I start crying. So I usually count when I start crying as the best part.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I'm talking, the
1: sides the side scrolling.
0: Uh, what what the jaguar shark is to life aquatic.
1: Uh-huh.
0: The wolf is to this movie. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, so the behind-the-scenes story that Wes Anderson tells in this conversation is uh, that they were recording the vocal performances for this scene. It's mm-hmm. um, George Clooney and uh, Jason Schwartzman and Eric Anderson and Wally mm-hmm. Wolodarsky And the wolf has no dialogue. Mm-hmm. And they're recording it outdoors. And Wes Anderson got an idea and he asked... Uh, the rest of the people gathered there, would someone be willing to volunteer to walk up that hill and be the wolf for this performance? The wolf who, again, <laughs> does not say a word. Yes. To just stand in almost literally for yeah. the wolf. Yeah. And someone did volunteer to do that. And do you know who it was?
1: Oh my God, no, I don't.
0: Bill Murray. <laughs> And Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson describes Bill Murray as walking very far away (laughs) to the point where he was tiny to them. (laughs) And yet at the same time, Wes Anderson does not say in any specific terms how he did this. But Wes Anderson (laughs) claims that Bill Murray performed the part of the wolf and did so beautifully And that someone else present, I think I remember him saying that maybe it was the director of photography, Mm -hmm. started to film Bill Murray on the hill uh, (laughs) using his phone. Uh And that later that video was shared with the animators to be used as reference for the scene.
1: Can you please explain the face I made when you said that?
0: I think it was disgust.
1: No, it was just my my jaw just dropped. I can't yeah. believe. Is he credited?
0: I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think anyone is credited as the wolf.
1: Bill Murray and the wolf, huh?
0: Yeah. Uh, it's no Ashley Sugar Notch, but
1: Mm-mm.
0: next best thing.
1: The wolf I'd prefer. This This is a way that we can talk about the plot. Kenny said to me as we started watching this movie, and I texted this to you: "This will significantly add to your caper count." Yes. <laughs> can we? Can I go through the capers that I have listed, and we can see how we'd like to count them? Please. There's the introduction.
0: Yes, the flash—not technically not a flashback because it's the first scene, but the, yes, the, the you know years prior to the yes events of the film, most yes. of them.
1: Um, which includes what I described as side-scrolling heaven. Oh yeah. For Wes Anderson, who loves a who loves a tracking shot. Right. Um we've got the three, which I feel like we must count as three separate capers because it happened on three separate nights. Right. First with the blueberries and the beagles. Mm-hmm. Beagles love blueberries.
0: Boggas' chicken the, farm.
1: Then with the smokehouse.
0: Bunce's turkeys.
1: Yes. And then the cellar cider with ash.
0: Right. Bean.
1: Um, and then I have a question for you. Do we count the actions of the Triple Bs as capers?
0: Oh, I don't think so. I considered the question of how many capers were in this movie. And I, uh-huh. I never considered that they're... That they might be the agents of any capers.
1: The reason I ask is because they do send notes made out of magazine clippings.
0: Yeah, they do. They are
1: working in secret. They surprise their victims (laughs) on multiple occasions.
0: Yeah. I guess partially, I mean, for a number of reasons, but partially because their intent is murder (laughs) and not like a robbery or uh uh, you know anything yeah a heist yeah like i I feel like i feel like a caper is likely to be a heist or a rescue mission yeah not a murder plot
1: Great. Okay. So I'll take out the digging out and the flood, mm-hmm. the cider flood.
0: Close, though. I, I'll, I'll say close, but no cigar.
1: Yeah. Maybe if this were a different movie, we'd be more into calling those capers. Mm-hmm. Um, I love how murder is the line here. Um, I have underground th- thievery times three, which is when they dig into each of the bogus, buns and beans – stores
0: you're talking about when they dance in each one yes yes which I would count as one caper
1: okay so that's one caper
0: yeah so we're up to five
1: and then the attempt at stealing the tail back true is its own caper that's six the gopher broke rescue mission
0: that's seven
1: and i have the gopher broke rescue mission i feel like it's worth noting that there are four parts to that Mm-hmm. Even if we only count it as one, because it is a very extensive Gopher Brook rescue mission and there are multiple moving parts here.
0: Yes. It, you're start you're talking about it starts with the open manhole and starts the pine cone the pine grenades. Cone and then yeah.
1: There's saving Christofferson. <clears throat> uh which is separate because Ash Ash is doing that on his own. Right. There's staving off the rabies beagle. Right. And then there's the escape slash tail reclamation.
0: This is this is uh, making me uh, realize something that I think maybe I had never mentally put my finger on, but it was there all along. It should have been very obvious. But mm-hmm. the fact is, um, it's a, a blind spot for me because I haven't seen any of the Oceans movies. Mm-hmm. But it's occurring to me now that Mr. Fox is George Clooney because <laughs> he was in the Oceans movies
1: yeah that makes complete sense, and I have seen a couple of those movies. I haven't seen all of them, and I quite enjoy them honestly I'm sure I would too um but yeah, they're that's essentially- you know it's a many tiered thing um and then I have the grocery store yes at the end, so mm-hmm. that's one, two, three, four, five, things. six, seven, eight
0: I think Which, that's where? perfect. I think that's the perfect summary.
1: Which brings our caper count with the addition of eight to, ah, 15. Nice. So, loves a caper.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this is this is caper central.
1: Can I talk about some things that I just like, some sort of themes that show up and that are very, um, that I love that um, I think are really great in this movie? Sure. So we've talked about his shots with angles and in this movie it's so literal which <laughs> you know all of this is constructed right but because these everything in this movie was constructed for this movie right Everything feels incredibly sharp. And I don't mean like um, pointy, mm-hmm. but like the angles are so like literally 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. Everything is in an exact line. Right. Um, in a way that I think is really incredible. Right. Um, Which is why that – I said side-scrolling heaven was my note because that scene where they're trying to um, – in the introduction where they're going through the squab mm-hmm. farm is just like – um. I mean, almost looks like a video game. Like, it's yes. just incredible to see. Right. Um. I also, speaking of um, things that Wes Anderson loves to have particular uh, people do, Bill Murray gets to do another explanatory scene, mm. much like in The Life Aquatic.
2: Mm-hmm. When
1: he says, when he's explaining bogus buns and beans to Mr. Fox. Right. It's almost exactly the same as Let Me Tell You About My Boat.
0: He becomes narrator. Yes, it just yeah. it just happens that it's more diegetic in this movie because he's talking to Fox whereas mm-hmm. in Live Aquatic he's talking to, I guess he's talking to Ned but but that's like he, a reveal. Ned yeah. Is, yeah, Ned's like off camera. Yeah, he's really is it it seems as if he's talking right to us.
1: And then I also want to bring up because I keep bringing up the pink because Pink is going to come up in Grand Budapest. Mm-hmm. But the bakery in this movie? mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Is that T-Berry Pink. Ah, uh, yes. He loves a shot of a TV, even if it's fake. hmm We still get that. Yes. Isn't that so funny?
0: There's a lot of stuff on TV. Yes, it is funny.
1: Which also allows for one of my, I think, maybe, maybe not the funniest, but one of the lines that I think almost feels out of place, but is so funny, which is mm-hmm. when um, they're all on fire and Ian's yeah. son just goes...
0: Dad's on on fire. fire. Yeah. (laughs) It's a very funny moment.
1: So yeah, those are the things that we've sort of seen before that I feel like we get um, in this movie. Yeah. Oh, and I guess the one other thing is that um, there's always a question of when these movies are taking place. Yes. And this movie has a really funny example of that, Mm. which is when he's in um clive badger's office and he's Mm -hmm. talking to him he has a like weird tape recorder sitting on his desk that he hits play on to play the song yeah but in the background is what clearly looks like a mac (laughs) oh like it's like a silver like uh big screened thing with like a small keyboard Mm -hmm. um it's like a, but it is a computer and it does not look like a computer from like the 80s. Right. It looks like a computer from like any time from 2000 on. Right. Even, even really later than that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I almost feels like they shouldn't have put that there because mm-hmm. nothing else is that advanced in this
0: movie. Yeah, that's funny.
1: <laughs> I know you also talked about how the costuming of Mr. Fox was from like, Clothes that Wes Anderson wore. I mean, I, it's not actually that. It's, it's
0: the same <laughs> fabric, though. Yeah, but
1: it's not. It's not like they cut. It's not like when um, the Grinch makes no um a hat, and you can see him cutting it out of like a sweater.
0: <laughs> Presumably not.
1: But I also I want so terribly a, a question I have about how they made this movie, which I was not able to totally find out, was like how scale is working exactly, mm-hmm. because sometimes the characters seem on much bigger than they are and yeah. sometimes they mean seem much smaller <laughs> yes like like with the cider specifically mm-hmm. those jugs of cider are hypothetically about the size of a scrunched up fox right. adult fox and right. yet they carry them like they are fox-sized jugs <laughs> yes
0: yeah there is some stuff that uh does kind of uh provoke those questions uh in in me and I just do my best to ignore them. Mm-hmm. Like when fox and rat are fighting. Yeah and it's like, are the foxes really small? Or is that like an enormous rat? Like what Yeah. Um, and I well,
1: can actually almost even like believe that all of the animals are about the same size.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Even if that doesn't make any sense,
0: or the the other thing I remember making me think this way was, uh, in the rabid beagle scene, when mm. Fox picks up Spitz's chew toy, yeah, and it's like, okay, the chew toy seems small in Fox's hand, <laughs> yeah. so like, wouldn't Spitz just swallow that hole? <laughs> like, th- uh, but uh, yeah, th- there is, um, I don't I don't know too much about the the you know, process. But I do know at least that I read that not only are there multiple puppets for each character, which is no mm-hmm. surprise, but also there are puppets of varying sizes. Yes. So so there's there's probably a lot that we are tricked into not noticing mm-hmm. by like forced perspective. Yeah. Like there's for sure. there's a very clever shot where uh, uh rather than going to sleep, uh Ash and Christopherson sit by the uh, model train set.
1: I want to ta- I wanted to talk about the scene. And then So it, you say what you want to say.
0: <laughs> well, then then it goes from them playing with the train in their room to it pans up to the sort of horizon Mm-hmm. And a train goes by. Yeah, and in actuality, the the it's the same train. It it's literally the same prop. It's just it's oh. just forced perspective. It's just the same model yeah. in two different contexts.
1: That's wild. That's at least cool. Th- at least
0: that's what I read, and I I b- believe it to be true. <laughs>
1: I, I wanted to talk about that scene from a plot perspective. Mm-hmm. So there's this very funny, you know, tension that's happening for this whole movie, which is that Christopherson is this sort of, you know, quiet, hotshot dude. He's who's very like, polite. He's very polite and very humble, but also good at everything.
0: He's a natural.
1: He's a natural. Um, he's also, you know, in some ways important, Right. In mm-hmm. His his emotions are elevated because he is dealing with hardship.
0: Yep, his father and the hardship has is that double pneumonia.
1: His father has double pneumonia to the point that he must be cared for by his aunt and uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Ash is just super weird to begin with, and then can't stand Christopherson because he's getting everything that Ash wants without even trying. Like he just shows up and takes over and it's not even like Ash even had control to begin with.
0: Yeah. Ash Ash behaves very weirdly, but I would like to point out, I think it's worth saying that Ash's weird behavior is is recognizable. It's not totally like bizarre, like I've never seen this before. Mm -hmm. Ash's weird behavior is... Uh, indicative of and, and maybe I should not be the one to talk about this as a as a giant, but but Ash has has, you know, short guy syndrome.
1: Uh yes. Uh-huh. He is a little guy even for being a small fox. He's child. like
0: he's like a a an adolescent like Joe Pesci mm-hmm. that like, you know, demanding respect to compensate for Yeah, being, you know, uh, under, you know, developed relative to his peers.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, So in that scene, Christopherson's like, "Uh, do you think I could like sleep not under the train table? (laughs) Right. And Ash is just cruel to him. Yes. He says really terrible things. And says, you know, you're the one. I'm sick of this sad sad house guest routine. And then turns off the light. Christopherson rolls out his bedroll under the train table, has to scoot under, which when we watched this again last night with my my mom and brother, and Elliot was there, he looked over at Blake and said, I think he wants to sleep under the table. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, starts crying. Yes. And... Ash gets out of bed, comes mm-hmm. down, turns on the train set, and then Christopherson gets out and sits there. And I have never known how to read that scene.
0: I think it's perfect for the way that it's ambiguous. And I feel like they're, they're okay, so there's a clear arc that these two characters have to go through, right? Mm-hmm. They have to fight a lot until they become friends. hmm And uh, it would at this point in the movie, it would be premature if they became friends. Mm -hmm. But there also has to be, you know, enough of a groundwork laid that it's believable when they do, you know, come to an understanding later and befriend one another. And so here at the end of the scene, we see them sitting side by side, basically enjoying the the trains, mm-hmm. um, which, which looks like friendship. But at the same time, you could, you can read almost anything you want into what Ash does.
1: Yeah. Cause I think that the first time I saw it, when he was crying, I thought that he, the way that I read it, not really having seen it or knowing where it was going was that he turns on the train set, and it almost kind of felt like a "fuck you." Like not only like I need to turn on this train set, which is playing music to over to cover right. over the fact that you're
2: crying.
0: Yes, if there's any, I think most likely interpretation of, of the reason why he does what he does, it is yes, to it's to make noise, mm-hmm. and and cover up the noise that Christofferson is making, but also significantly, Christofferson Crawls out from under the table and joins him.
1: Exactly, and
0: he doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. He he doesn't stop the trains just because Christopherson stopped crying, and Ash doesn't like reject him outright. Yeah, we we stay with that. We linger with that scene for a moment and then move on. We don't we don't see what happens next. So they just they were just in it together, Uh, and that to me just that to me feels like. The point of it is, well, these two characters are have such conflicting agendas mm-hmm. that they can't, uh, you know, be on the same team at this point. Yeah, but, but uh, if circumstances were different, they would be friends.
1: Yeah, that's and, like, okay. That helps me with that.
0: And and this is this is like a glimpse of that. mm Hmm. Of what could be and what I will ever, eventually.
1: I wasn't ever critical of that scene, but I just always was like, what is happening?
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you want to know what my actual criticism of the film is? Yes. And uh, let me be clear. This is a five star, 10 out of 10, 100% A plus movie. Yes. I'm not taking anything away from my grading of it.
1: Yeah. I'm curious to see if it's the same thing that I have to say.
0: I thought to myself, is there anything wrong with this movie in any, sig- that in any significant way? Yes. And it didn't take long before I thought of something, mm-hmm. which is Mrs. Fox is kind of underwritten.
2: Oh,
1: that was not what I was going to say.
0: That's my sort of one uh, room for improvement type of feedback uh, for for this movie is that Mrs. Fox doesn't say or do very much outside of disapproving Mm -hmm. of what her husband does and expressing her disappointment. Mm hmm there there's a, there's a there's a there is a, there is literally an opportunity toward the end of the film it's made explicitly clear for everyone in their uh community mm-hmm. to to have their role and to and to work together um mm-hmm. and um and she's still not a part of that yeah she still doesn't you know have you know she's not Manning the communications cans, you know, she's not throwing any grenades. She's not, you know, she's like a record keeper. She basically doesn't, she just, she basically has her, you know, conflict with her husband. Mm -hmm. She paints her landscape. I guess her role is she gets to paint, you know, flags and X's Mm -hmm. on the landscape, which she's created, which is a sort of schematic for their Mm -hmm. plan. But, um, uh, so maybe, yeah, may, I just remembered that as I was talking. So But maybe, even so,
1: you're right. They don't, she doesn't get highlighted in the same way. Right. And she doesn't get the, um. because I think that she is a really interesting character. Yeah. But we could have seen a lot more right.
0: there. Yeah, I think that there is.
1: And I think there would have been time for it.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is a pretty short movie. It's less mm-hmm. than an hour and a half. Um, it, it, there's definitely interiority to her character mm-hmm. and and conflict and, and a richness. Um, she, she just doesn't do a whole lot. And that's what I mean when I say that she's underwritten. She's not underwritten yes. as a person. And I don't mean person. I mean chara- character character um but she's she's underwritten in terms of uh action or activity
1: yes absolutely yeah i take that note my fault that i had was i was thinking i had the same thing i said to kenny i'm not sure i can find fault in this movie and i agree with you this is a five star 10 out of 10 movie um so this is and it's not even a criticism it's more so everything else in this movie is fantastic and this is Fine.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: functional and sure. good. And this thing is that the music's fine.
2: Mmm. Wow. And
1: and this is this is why I will say this. Okay. I think that the music is incredibly um, holistic. Mm-hmm. Like it feels very smooth throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um it feels like it's really working with each scene. Mm-hmm. I couldn't pick a needle drop because I was like, none of these stick out to me. None of these. Because the the point of a needle drop, when we've talked about needle drops, right, is a needle drop is that we think of as like the best needle drop is when the music is taking a scene that is good or important or meaningful and somehow, you know, elevating it to some new plane. Yes. And I don't think any of the songs did that for me. They're all fine. Yeah. And they're all working, and right. I think it's color, you know, it, those songs all feel that orange color. Right. Um, but after I watched it the first time, usually after I watch it the first time, I have some sense about, okay, this is probably going to be my favorite shot,
2: mm-hmm. or like
1: one of these will be my favorite shot, one of these will be my favorite scene. I know my favorite, my needle drop will probably be at this scene or this scene. Mm-hmm. I just have to figure out what the song is. Yeah. And I, I did not pick one. That's fair I enough. refused
0: yeah, if I were to pick one, um, I really like when he uses uh, the Beach Boys cover of Old Man River. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that stands out to me and sort of elevates the...
1: And when when does he use that? Because again, I didn't actually look up any of
0: these. It's, it's um, when they're in the sewer, I believe. It's sort of after uh. all of the action of the climax and it sort of shows you... Um, almost in montage, but montage implies that there would be cuts. it's it's mm-hmm. a long tracking shot um, sort of going from room to room um, checking in with the different supporting characters. and And if I remember correctly, it's during that point where we're hearing Old Man River. Um, interesting that you brought up the music uh, because that reminds me to point out, the award nominations, do you know? Oh, yeah. Do you know what Academy Awards this film was nominated for? No. It was nominated for two. One of them is uh, animated feature film, uh-huh. and the other one is Original Score.
2: <laughs>
0: and uh, it lost both mm-hmm. and it lost both to the same movie. Uh, and that movie is up. I love up up is fine it's it's vastly inferior to this it's movie. not this yeah no.
1: it's not special in the same way that no. this movie is
0: no up up might be actually that's not true i was about to <laughs> i was about to say up might be the least special <laughs> pixar movie but that that's not true it's it's actually the least special pixar movie that you actually remember when you try to remember mm. pixar movies but then there are others that are also on the list that you might not call to mind unless you were being very thorough
1: I will say though when i'm thinking about up i can hear the original score music in my head right now
0: mm, that's interesting yeah
1: so like um, it's that sort of like waltzy da 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 da
0: yeah um, i can sort of imagine it but i can't call it to mind yeah in my memory so um
1: who who scored
0: up? do we know who scored up uh, you, i
1: feel like i do know i don't know the name of the person but i feel like i do know
0: i looked it up it was michael uh Giacchino.
1: okay yes and he has done a lot of stuff
0: that a I lot recognize. of stuff yeah pretty yeah famous successful composer um do you uh have any shots that you want to talk about
1: yeah, so I brought up the one which the is my favorite scrolling.
0: shot. Heaven, no. Oh,
1: the, um, oh, the waterfall. The waterfall. I, every time, yeah. and you know, there's a lot of really incredible shots. So let me sort of go through the ones that didn't isn't my favorite. <laughs> sure. Um, the side-scrolling is wild. The fight, all of the sort of individual shots from the fight between Rat and yes. um, Mr. Fox. Yes, the, are. The,
0: The electricity, the lighting—that's that's that's all very clever and memorable.
1: And it's one of those things too, where every time I see it, it's like
0: the strobing. You
1: sort of, you sort of get used to how beautiful the movie is. Like even though every single shot is incredible, every single piece of Mm -hmm. image image on the screen is incredible. You sort of get used to it, and then you get something like that scene, Mm -hmm. and it reminds you again what you're looking at, which is this like wild artistry.
0: Yes. It, it, it's important to say um, I, I I shouldn't let the conversation uh, conclude without saying nothing else looks like this movie does. Yes. Um, Wes Anderson, uh, we've talked about how he used a little stop motion in the past two movies. Mm-hmm. He wanted to make a stop motion uh, feature film. He uh, was... He loved this book and he, he was mainly interested in, in making stop motion animation using puppets with fur specifically. He mm-hmm. was he was interested in furry animal puppets. <laughs> um and there's a trivia fact about this movie that I read on IMDb that is mm-hmm. so up my alley, I was like, yes, this <laughs> is the fact. Here mm-hmm. it is. <clears throat> Shot digitally using a Nikon D3, which offers a significantly higher resolution than even that of full high definition, it was also shot at a frame rate of 12 frames per second rather than the more fluid 24 Oh yes. so that viewers would notice the medium of stop motion itself.
1: Yes, I love that, and you absolutely do. This the the like hair is like constantly just like on their faces.
0: Yes, it's yeah, it's it's uh like a flip book, which we saw in Bottle Rocket, right? It's 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 not seamless, you know, simulation of movement. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, you know you can you can see how from from one frame to another. I mean, you can't see every single frame. It's But so, it feels but like you can. It feels like you can, exactly, from the way that the characters move and the way that the fur just sort of moves out of place, Um, you know, within frames of the same shot. This movie has – I just want to – I'm repeating myself, but I want to emphasize this. This movie has half the frames per second of yes. of most movies, yes. of the standard movie. <laughs>
1: That is fifty percent.
0: A deliberate choice, so that so that the the medium itself would be, uh, you know, part of the experience. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not just uh a funnel, you know, yeah. through through which through which it, it, it's presented to you. It, it it's it's like the frame is part of the picture.
1: And I think also part, you know, I brought this up too with the, the cider cellar, um, but then they also do this incredible stuff with lighting sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um And another time that they do that is, you know, when they've dug the first time mm-hmm. to escape from bogus buns, and beans. And um, Mrs. Fox says... Can you just talk to me uh around this mineral deposit? yes and you think you know they're in the ground and yet they go around a corner and they're suddenly in like a crystal cavern right And that every time like just takes my breath away
2: yeah
1: um but yes, my favorite shot is the shot with the waterfall. I don't know how they did the waterfall
2: mm-hmm.
1: um it's it's the low point for Mr. Fox, right it's um so for a movie that I just described all these sort of stunning colors and everything like that the scene is fairly monochromatic because it's pretty dark and then the waterfall sort of gray right. and then you have the fox sort of in not complete silhouette but partial silhouette
2: yeah
1: the sound of the waterfall too it's just like another thing where suddenly your brain like has to readjust that like this is the same movie you were just watching yes so that's that's my favorite shot
0: absolutely uh and and understandably so um talking about lighting i just want to mention like the multiple scenes in which bean is relatively shrouded in darkness Uh the the scene where he shoots all the lights out one by one (laughs) and the scene gets darker and darker Uh but even better than that is the moment, it's basically his entrance into the movie except for the expository stuff that we yeah. got from Bell Murray earlier. But when he's shrouded in darkness and he has a cigarette in his mouth and he inhales <laughs> and the cherry on the cigarette lights up his face for like a few seconds and then goes out yes. again. Holy crap. How did they do it? Uh, oh, and, and by the way, first scene of the movie when Mrs. Fox tells Fox she's pregnant and he mm-hmm. says you're glowing and then it cuts to <laughs> the pu- the puppet that looks like a lamp yes um that like talk about it's just like, perfect talk about like using the medium it's like yes it, it's it's a it's a joke that's just based on like the, the physical materials that you like <laughs> built the movie out of, um, which is, which is in keeping with one, uh, one of so many things I love about this movie is that it, 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 as much as it is a Wes Anderson movie and mm-hmm. uh, it's a great comedy and it has um, a sophisticated drama to it. Um, it, it also doesn't forget to be a good cartoon mm-hmm. it has yes. these these wonderful moments where it's like they're call claw- they're crawling up the electric fence and it keeps becoming <laughs> you know their skeletons yes um, which i also love and all the stuff with the eyeballs yes rat's death scene is something <laughs> else completely it, yes. it it is it's it's unlike anything else when he dies and they play it so dramatically and then at the moment of his death there are x's in his eyes (laughs) and and i think maybe the funniest line in the movie is not the chinese restaurant line Mm -hmm. but but the line just before that which once you hear the chinese restaurant line you're like okay i guess that line was just set up for Uh fox to say in the end, he was—he's ju- just another dead rat locked in a dumpster behind a Chinese restaurant. But yes. before that, just the way that Jason Schwartzman says, he redeemed himself,
1: <laughs> which is like he did not redeem
0: himself. It's so funny to me because it is—it—it's it just—it's just like it's the—it's the subtext of what the scene is pretending to be. Yes. Right. And and Ash, who's just, you know, a kid, uh, who's just like trying to keep up in a world that where he can't keep up for the most part. Yeah. Just just takes that subtext and just blurts it outright. <laughs> he, he, he redeemed himself.
1: But also it's so funny because he didn't redeem himself. Right. It, yes,
0: yeah. It's that's true. Because also. they make
1: it very clear that he's like, Would you have told me if I hadn't killed you? Right. And he says, Never. No,
0: yeah. no that, that's true too. So, um, but the, the, the shot that on this rewatching, I thought, oh, this is doing something really special with the camera. And just briefly, I'll do more setup for this by saying another way into talking about this movie that I considered that Mm -hmm. I don't have as much to say about because I just don't have enough knowledge of the subject to speak intelligently on it. But, Mm -hmm. um... In addition to uh, oh, uh, author uh, Wes Anderson, writer director, only wrote original movies. Now he's doing an adaptation. He's a live action filmmaker doing uh, you know entirely animated film for the first time. And so there's a way of talking about this movie as like maybe it was a real uh, asset, and 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 maybe this is this movie is lightning in a bottle. For mm-hmm. a whole number of reasons, but a significant reason is maybe an animation director would not have made half of the choices that Wes Anderson mm. made coming from his live action film background. Background. You know, yeah. there are so many long takes and tracking shots and, you know, stuff that must have been impossible to realize without doing mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, trickery that is possible because it's stop motion and you can just, mm-hmm. you know, you can you can design an impossible set by, yeah. you know, taking away one part of it and replacing it with another and and you can do these forced perspective things by just having different sized puppets that are supposed to be different distances from the camera, mm-hmm. etc. Um so uh Wes Anderson uh, you know creates, composes some shots, especially long takes that um, another, you know, an animation, uh, uh, someone with an animation background um, might not have thought to do. But, mm-hmm. but because this is a, still, and again, a Wes Anderson movie, it's going to have a lot of his recognizable tropes, even though it's in animation now, which is mm-hmm. which is weird, and so there's this one move that the camera makes that I thought was so brilliant, and it's the first time they start digging. Yes, and it's and and, and it's it's a close up on Fox saying, "We've been trapped like this before." Uh-huh. He's had his brainstorm where he knows what to do, uh-huh. and he yells, "Dig!" And he really draws it out. He goes, "Dig!" Uh-huh. And as he does that, the camera pans outward, and that's like a recognizable thing. That like, yeah. that, like, okay, I've seen that in films before. Somebody uh-huh. yells an elongated word, and the camera pans out to give us the sort of you know, oh, the the scream is taking up you know so much space in in the world. Yeah. So that's fine. But also what's happening is that when he yells this way, the camera pans out so far. Yes. That it escapes the boundaries of the room that they're in. (laughs) So that you see the frame around the entire room and the Mm -hmm. earth surrounding it. And at that point they start digging into the earth and then we follow them digging. So it's like simultaneously by him coming up with the idea to dig their way out and yeah. yelling dig, mm-hmm. it's like he actively uh, controls the like scope of the space that they can occupy. Yes. Because the camera pans out wider than the room that they're escaping, thus giving them new space in which to make their escape.
1: Well, and it also harkens back to something we know that he loves with it, which is cross-sections, right? Yes. So we know, of course, about the cross-section in life aquatic, and then we've right. also talked about the your favorite cross-section of the train.
0: Yeah, the impossible train the visual metaphor. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so this gives us exactly that too because mm-hmm. they also could have given us them digging where we're sort of and I think they do do this at another time. Maybe I'm wrong. Where we're sort of like in the hole. Right. Instead of seeing it like an ant farm.
0: Yes. And the and the the room you know literally has no fourth wall. Yes. Right. Like he yells dig and in a sense, breaks the fourth wall because the mm-hmm. camera pans out far enough that, in theory, we should see the fourth wall rather than mm-hmm. continuing to see the room that they're in. But there yes. is no fourth wall. Yeah, and 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 that enables them to get out to to uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, escape the confinement and go into a new space. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, th- that was my favorite shot because that's my favorite camera move.
1: That's a good one. That's a really good one. I hadn't thought of that that way, and that's really smart. Um, Thank you. Do you have a favorite scene?
0: I think one scene that really made an impression on me on this viewing was um, just before Mrs. Fox leaves to go to the mine. Mm -hmm. to tell them help is coming help is on the way and tend to the children when she licks the mud off of ash's face Mm -hmm. and she gives him the little speech about how he is different Mm -hmm. but we all are and then him especially and you know talking about his father Mm -hmm. um there there was something there was something about that dialogue that stuck out to me where i was like oh okay this is a good um you know they've got this sort of running it's not a running joke but like a running Mm -hmm. beat of like how they wave their hands before they say different yeah (laughs) um you know when they're talking about ash um and that to me was a kind of like oh okay that was uh that was for a good reason Mm -hmm. and that's so that so that this dialogue can happen do you, yeah. have, do you have a favorite scene that you haven't spoken about?
1: Yeah, it's the, um, I would say, companion scene to that one. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I, which yeah, is, I
0: think I know what you're going to say, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's the scene where um, Mr. Fox tells Ash, well, I'll go through it in a second, but it's right after Mrs. Fox has said, I love you too, but I never should have married you. Right. Which is just devastating as a line, yeah. right? That's the sort of line that should be in, I don't know, like a Woody Allen movie.
0: Good example, right? yes.
1: I haven't actually ever seen a Woody Allen movie, but that's the sense. And yet you're sense. right,
0: in my opinion, <laughs> yes.
1: Um, you know, that's the sort of movie that – the line that like, you know, co- people in college should be quoting. Right. Like, and when they're film buffs or whatever. Okay. So that line – which I which I don't want to say that line is out of place in that movie, but that line, the way it's delivered, it's delivered. That's a line where it's like, "This is fucking Meryl Streep,"
0: right? Absolutely. That line does come dangerously close to breaking the movie because it it's such a Wes Anderson line, yeah. Uh, and it's and it's uh, it's really rubbing up against the uh, pretense that this is a children's movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, in an uncomfortable way, um, not to say that it doesn't pull it off, just that that it's 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 almost too powerful.
1: Yes, I, I yeah I take what yeah absolutely, um, and I think that part of the reason it is pulled off is because of two things. The first is that it's Meryl Streep who's delivering that line. Yes. The second is because that line is followed by this scene. Right. Because in the past, I feel like the stakes for Mister Fox have been sort of self-imagined mm-hmm. for him it's the thrill or getting away with something
2: Right
1: now the stakes are very clear to him that it's um, keeping things together mm-hmm. and so we move on from that scene which has my favorite shot and he goes and starts talking to Ash who's like you know very upset and christofferson has been taken and he's just feeling very angsty and like a failure. And he's doing his sort of Mr. Fox thing, which is to sort of tell this elaborate story.
2: Right.
1: Um, to, you know, have a, you know, have a a speech, and then the speech has meaning. And Ash is fucking over it. Right. He is like, you know, cutting him off because he knows the story. And he's like, get to the point. And so they're talking about when he found out that he was gonna be born and he said, you know, I kept wondering who is this little boy going to be? And he says or girl and he is right at that or girl because at that point we didn't know. And then he leans over and he says, "Ash, I'm so glad he was you." And then he says, "It's not your fault, it's mine." And I feel like like that scene, I always start crying when Mrs. Fox says, "I love you too, but I never should have married you." Yeah. But I fucking lose it at that scene and it almost doesn't even feel earned.
0: <laughs> yes. I I think yeah, go, sorry, you're not finished. Go ahead.
1: But the reason that I think it works so well for me mm-hmm. is because um Mr. Fox is still kind of bullshitting, right? Mm. He's still in his old mode. And when he says those things, I feel like that's like the turn yeah. for him. Have we talked about turns in poems before?
0: Yeah, I think so.
1: <laughs> yeah, so basically like you know, this is the moment where there is a shift and you can see the shift happen for two reasons. The first is that because he starts doing his sort of normal Mr. Fox bullshitting, Mm -hmm. but then when he says that, it feels so genuine and it maybe wouldn't feel so genuine if he didn't follow it up by saying, this isn't your fault, it's my fault. Right? Because also at this point, you know, Ash did this thing right he tried to steal back the tail in part because he wanted to prove himself to his father right and now his father is saying to him not only am i glad that you are the person you are you can take the role back of being a child mhm i will take care of you now i won't make you feel like right you have to earn your place next to me right um that's my favorite scene
0: yeah Uh, You're right. And I think that it is earned uh, just barely because we know outright that Mr. Fox needs to change. Mm -hmm. And he is always repeating how he's a wild animal at heart, which is another way of saying that the way he is is his nature and there's no way to change that. Yeah. And so what we follow uh through his arc is a negotiation between um well the the way he is isn't going to change. That mm-hmm. might be impossible, but but what he does with it can change. Yes. And that's and that's what he learns and that's what mm-hmm. he does starts doing differently. Mm-hmm. Um and this is the you know, the scene you're describing is an example of that. Almost any time Mr. and Mrs. Fox have a uh sincere dialogue, mm-hmm. um, it threatens to break the movie um by being uh too good in so, in mm-hmm. some ways. Mm-hmm. And and the other time it's already happened is um when uh Mrs. Fox is so upset with him and she says the story is so predictable. And, yeah. and he says, oh, if it's so predictable, then can you tell me how it ends? And she mm-hmm. says it it ends when we all die <laughs> unless you change. And yeah. then she walks out. And it's like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, like that." that scene, that scene is almost – Almost too clever and almost too smart and almost too meta Mm -hmm. to um, be be pulled off in in this movie. Emphasis on the word almost because I think it does work.
1: I think it does too. Yeah. But
0: it puts me in the frame of mind of like Dan Harmon's story circle like that we've talked about Mm -hmm. in the context of um, Rick and Morty uh, way back when. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, like. You're hey buddy you're <laughs> in a story and you're the main character of the story mm-hmm. and and we're we're in it now and things are things have gone wrong <laughs> and and the only way for this story to end in a in a happy way mm-hmm. is for you to change that's like literally like the last beat of the story circle
2: yeah I
1: will say, too, I think something about this movie that has – that very few things have changed for me now that I'm a parent
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, in the sense that, like, I think I've maybe said this – I've maybe – I've said this before. I don't know if I've said on the podcast or to you specifically, but, like, when – so many parents I know um, when they give birth are like, my whole life changed – I didn't know. They'll say something like, I didn't know I could love something mm-hmm. as much as I love this kid. And I'm like, that sucks. Yeah. You didn't know what you were capable of. Right. Mm. Why did Whereas you do came... it? <laughs>
2: <Why>? <laughs> when
1: I And I say, I've said this too, I, you know, I've always been a mother. And mm-hmm. I know that that sounds insane. But when I gave birth, I didn't feel any differently. And the reason I love Elliot is not because I created him. It's because he's the one that I get to take care of. Um, and I love all children, and I and I want to care for them. But there are some things that feel different to me, and one of them is watching this movie because I can really empathize a lot more with these parents trying to both parent this child but also love this child who is so clearly struggling with who he is um, while also wanting him to, like, uh, be nice mm-hmm. and maybe share his room with his cousin.
2: <laughs> right.
1: Um, so yeah, the, the the scene with Mrs. Fox also really stood out to me for that reason because she it I think it also because she hypothetically is like the good parent, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and yet even she is like struggling really to talk to him. Mm-hmm. Um I have two funny things that I feel like I just don't want to forget. Sure. The cuss, yeah. the cussing, so funny,
0: done very
2: well, so
1: surprising every time mm-hmm. must be hilarious for children sure. <laughs> that understand what swearing is. Mm-hmm um and then the way that they eat. Yes. <laughs> Every time I'm like I laugh.
0: Yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> that to me is great because uh it's doing uh multiple things, right? It, mm-hmm. it it on one level it's a it's a funny visual joke. But also on another level it's like it's like on theme for the movie. Like it mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a movie about like their, you know, struggle with uh, their wild animals, their, their animal natures, and and yeah. the juxtaposition between you know the the anthropomorphic lives they live and their uh, animal behaviors. Mm-hmm.
1: My one other note is that our dead dog count is still only at one. Yep, we narrowly got away with it. Yes. who can say what happens to that rabies <laughs> dog? But we don't know. <laughs>
0: It's on medication.
1: They they didn't kill it yet, so it seems like they.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Also, as a note, the scene where that rabies dog gets the tail and just wrecks it mm-hmm. is like another moment that's so surprising to me every time. Yeah. And then Mr. Fox's face, mm-hmm. is like that's a that's a really that's a perfect example of like how they got the faces. Yeah. His face, when he sees his tail that's already been cut off, just now shredded. And it's like, there's like, as Blake pointed out when we were watching it last night, he was like, oh my God, the tail is bloody still Mm -hmm. somehow.
0: Right. Um, A couple of things real quick. Um, Before I was talking, I was giving you examples of how uh, this is a great cartoon. Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to add to that list of examples when they are dancing and specifically um, when you see... You know, a group of them dancing and it's another sort of cross section, right? You mm-hmm. see the the uh, uh, frame of the building around them. Um that's not only uh cartoonish, it's it's one specific cartoon. I think it is a del- Oh right, I, of course. It's just, I think it's a deliberate homage to to Peanuts to, to the Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown Christmas, Christmas special. special yeah. Um and another thing I want to mention real quick is just that um I, I think uh w- one thing that really stands out to me about this movie is that i think that on the script level um it's just it's so finely tuned yes it, absolutely in a way that i would not think to describe other wes anderson movies this way mm-hmm. i wouldn't think to describe them as like oh everything you know on i mean obviously on that's all we talk about on the production design level is mm-hmm. that everything is just so and it's meticulous. But on the script level, it, it the, clearly there's an attempt for things to be very naturalistic, mm-hmm. and so you know there are tangents that dialogues go down and and. Um, and, and so therefore you kind of, you can't say that like, oh, it's like a Swiss watch, you know, everything it's set up in act one and it's paid off in act three. And it's like, Mm -hmm. there's some stuff like that, but that's not the vibe that the movie gives you. Yeah. They give you,
1: they give you like tone. Right. But yeah. But that's not this.
0: This movie is both. This movie like manages to do the naturalistic thing. Where like, for example, Ash goes like, was I rude to Agnes? I'll say something to her later, you know? Um, (laughs) But also at the same time, it's got this like, oh, everything feel, you know, everything they say feels so intentional and important. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll just say once again. The wolf scene is the best scene in the movie. That's my favorite scene. Fuck what I said yeah. before. My favorite <laughs> scene in the movie is the is the uh, uh, exchange with the wolf and mm-hmm. and um that wouldn't I that wouldn't belong. It barely belongs because it just it, it
1: barely belongs. It barely comes up that he has a phobia of wolves. Well, that's
0: the thing. Is is that it's it's a totally, you know, on a story level it, it uh, on a on a like plot, not story, because story yeah. has a like, theme and arc and stuff. Yes. But on a plot level, it is an unnecessary scene. Yes. Um. But uh, it it doesn't feel like it doesn't belong, mm-hmm. and they make it belong by giving mm-hmm. you just enough of that referencing to the phobia of wolves mm-hmm. throughout the film leading up to it. Um, so yeah, that's just another thing that I think is really special about this movie is that um, yes, I agree fine tuning of the of the script, which to me feels all the more remarkable because
1: because it's an adaptation.
0: I was going to say yes, that too, but I was going to say because it is the second collaboration with Noah Baumbach, and the first one was The Life Aquatic,
1: which I think is dialogue wise perfect. So I don't know what you're talking about, but yeah,
0: uh, sure fair enough yes no sorry no (laughs) offense intended but in my opinion it ain't no swiss watch
1: yeah sure is that the is that fantastic
0: i think we did a fantastic job
1: well what are we watching next week because at this point i don't remember the order (laughs)
0: um this
1: when you said last week that we were watching the fantastic mr fox this week i was like oh good yes
0: it took you by surprise i remember that um I will say this is uh, this is number six, right? So this is uh, we're, mm. we're we're two trilogies down, one oh, trilogy shit. to go, and the the remaining movies are number seven, Moonrise Kingdom.
2: <gasps> oh, good.
0: Number eight, Grand Budapest Hotel, and then number nine, uh-huh. of course, I Love Dogs.
1: Okay. good. So
0: ahead. see you next week for Moonrise Kingdom.
1: See you next week. Bye, Will. Love you. Love you too. Bye. Will is on Twitter and Letterboxed at youngest of one. And his website is williamhoffacker.com.
0: You can find Liz at exclamate on Instagram, at exclamate underscore on Twitter, or on her website, elizabethdeannamorrislakes.com. Our website is smugbuds.com, and the podcast is at smugbuds on Twitter and Instagram.